Far above the Efelduath in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation, with a special focus on Amazon's upcoming big-budget adaptation of The Legendarium. I am joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Almeria, Queen of Numenor. And I am joined today by your wonderful host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Sam Gamgee. Aw, good old Sam. Hey, that fits up perfectly with our quote today. Good old Sam. Uh, on today's pod, we're going to talk about whether Orlando Bloom is actually Legolas in real life, a new director, new casting news that suggests we may get Wizards after all, and another emotional plot twist in The Crow Show. Then our main topic, we continue with our discussion of Aldarion and Arendis, the Meritor's wife from Unfinished Tales. Now before we get started, we'd just like to ask you that if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, please do us a favor and subscribe. Rate us, share us with your friends on social media. Uh, that really helps us a lot. It may seem like a small thing, but it helps other people to find us. All right, Jen, the first thing I want to talk about, we're going to get into the news. Um, this isn't really news, but it is the, probably the most important thing that has happened in my life this week, which is Orlando did an, ins- <laughs> an insane interview, just wonderfully insane, just just beautiful madness. Uh, where he oh man, totally in earnest described his life, his daily routine, um, being totally serious. And the internet had a lot of fun with it because he has the most LA lifestyle you could possibly imagine. I mean, he's like, you know, the it's like the the first five minutes of American Psycho listening to him describe, oh my describe gosh. his life. He's talking about his octane brain octane oil all this crazy stuff all vegan protein powders and all yeah here's of, here's his breakfast bananas. regimen i like to earn my breakfast and i'm not i'm not going to do an accent it, w- it would kick it up enough to do an accent but i'm not going to do it <laughs> I, I like to earn my breakfast so i'll just have some green powders that i mix with brain octane oil a collagen powder for my hair and nails and some protein it's all quite la really then i'll go for a hike while i listen to some nirvana or stone temple pilots <laughs> Oh my gosh, like the, my first thought, it's a whole interview of this kind of mm-hmm. thing, like a three-page spread or something like that. I was just like, this is this is a guy with a lot of time on his hands. Like it's just By 9 a.m., it's breakfast, bonkers. which is usually porridge, a little hazelnut milk, cinnamon, vanilla paste, hazelnuts, goji berries, a vegan protein powder, and a cup of PG tips, which is tea. I'm 90% plant-based, so I'll only eat a really good piece <laughs> of red meat maybe once a month. I sometimes look at a cow and think, that's the most beautiful thing ever. And <laughs> God bless you, oh my Orlando Bloom. He got so much flack for yeah. this, so much flack, and it was delightful. Though I mean, there was Twitter went crazy. Just I mean, look, I I love Orlando Bloom. I'm not really making fun of him. I, there's nothing wrong with you know being very specific about your routine and eating very healthy. It's actually a good thing to eat healthy. I try and eat healthy. Um, I'd love to be able to do what he does. But it is just 
it is it just sounds so funny hearing it described this way and like totally unironically no sense of the humor in it he's just hey this is this is my life and uh i don't realize how hilarious this sounds oh my gosh and i love the creative there were a lot of creative rereadings Uh, my favorite was uh, someone uh reading that excerpt in the voice of hannibal ector it was incredible incredible (laughs) (laughs) so sometime just do yourself a favor and you know go down go down the youtube rabbit hole of people recreating this interview it's pretty yeah yeah it's really good it's really i mean seriously it's like oh i guess that does sound like kind of an elvish lifestyle, like you know the 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 meals that he's eating. It's so ultra natural, you know, so earthy. How terribly elvish and pretentious! Yeah, he's, of you, Orlando. He's still living. He's still you know living that Lord of the Rings lifestyle. So into the character, he never he's got living, out of character. I didn't realize he was developing uh, work and shows and different things for Amazon. So good for him if he has a deal with Amazon. That's yeah, great. I, didn't, I mean, you know, to be fair, it seems like Amazon's got a deal with everybody. They're just like making insane amounts of material right now. But um, no, that is a good thing. And I, I haven't really kept track of his career too much since Lord of the Rings. Uh, I mean, I, you know, he made a few movies. He was like something obviously of a an icon after Lord of the Rings. So he made a few movies and then kind of dropped off the map a little bit. Yeah, he dropped off for a long time, and then he's been in that series Carnival, I think. Mm. Is that yeah, what it is? Right. I'll have to fact check. I haven't actually watched that, but I think he stepped back intentionally for a while. But um, yeah, I would imagine after the huge success of Lord of the Rings, it was probably pretty overwhelming. Well, especially because he was just barely out of um, theater school. Like, wasn't he like 18 or 19? Yeah, that's right. Right? Fresh out of theater school. Oh, and then, my gosh. You know, he plays Legolas, which was actually a fairly perfect role for someone right out of theater school because he didn't have like a lot of heavy lines he just had to have like a i don't know a pointed stern elvish look on his face uh mystique yeah. uh which he does very he did very he well <laughs> the perfect elf i mean you couldn't get better than his depiction frankly yeah um but you know absolutely like in the book legolas doesn't have a huge role in terms of you know lines and dialogue and Heavy emotional moments. I think in Return of the King, he has like one line and it's a diversion. Right. (laughs) That's his only line, basically. (laughs) His one line. Um, So moving on with our news, Che Yip was confirmed to be the new director on Tolkien Reading Day. So this was tweeted out by both the Lord of the Rings on Prime Twitter account, their official account, and the Amazon Twitter account. Um, It was confirmed prior uh, by Fellowship of the Fans, it was a theory, and um, he was correct. So Fellowship of the Fan was right about yeah, speculating um, that Che Yip would be involved. Bat- batting a thousand so, so far, he's been making good on his theories. So this one came true. Yeah, and it definitely certainly makes him makes him look pretty good. And so the the news, the way it was broken. I mean, you said it was tweeted out, and they tweeted out a picture that has a just a clapperboard. You know, one of those things that you know. Uh, you know, scene one, take two, click, you know, one mm-hmm. of those things. And, but that all the good information is blacked out on this photo. The title of the show is blacked out. I, I stared at all the numbers because it has all these, all these numbers. And I was trying to figure out what they mean, you know, which one means scene, I which think one means everybody episode, was trying to decipher, but it's undecipherable. <laughs> it might as well be in, you know, it'd be actually, we'd get more out of it if it was in Cinderin because at least somebody can speak Cinderin. 
or some other elvish language. Right. This was just a bunch of numbers. Um, maybe we needed someone who could read, uh, uh, you know, binary code or something. I was hoping so badly that they would post, since it was Tolkien Reading Day, I thought we were going to get, you know, some huge trailer or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and so I was a little bit bummed because we really got nothing out of them except a, a beautiful photo in New Zealand. In New Zealand, and yes, Che Yip is involved, which like great. It's it's underway. The product project is underway, but we still have, you know, very little to go on. So you know, I know that we have to be patient. But uh, yeah, I was a little bummed about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I I'm with you. I was hoping for something, even if it was just like a a still image of someone in their outfit. Even from their back, like just some something from the set that was a little more tangible. This had no um, actual people in it. It was just, you know, in the background was the ocean. It was set on a beach. So the clapperboard was sitting on the beach. So there was really nothing, no information could be gleaned from it. But honestly, probably a smart move. The the less that they re- information that they release, the more we want it. So it's only making us hungrier. It's certainly created, it's created such a buzz and we're all just creating wild theories of our right. own. So if that's their marketing strategy, it's, it's working. Yeah. I, I stared at the, the part that had the title that they blacked out and it's not a hundred percent blacked out. There is, you know, like the top of letters and the bottom of some letters. So I was trying to f- piece together what words could have those letters. It's really impossible to tell for sure. And I think though, my theory is that it just says, Lord of the Rings project. So I don't even think that the the title on the clapperboard is the real title. I think it's just a placeholder. Do you think they even have a real title? Like, do you think it is yet unnamed? Perhaps they're waiting. I, 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 that's possible. It's certainly possible. I'd have to imagine that they have something in mind, at least, you know, the writers or somebody has something in mind because the title would have to relate in some direct way to the the plot that they've chosen the characters that they've chosen that being said right you know it could just be they could call this show the lord of the rings and just leave it at that because it still focuses on sauron who is the lord of the rings so you know it doesn't have to be anything oh that's a good point that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. I thought as of now, they were just using Lord of the Rings as a placeholder and because it has so much name recognition to get people hyped. But you're right. It could actually be the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll find assuming out. Assuming that, I mean, assuming that everybody's understanding of what the subject matter of the show will be is correct, that it will follow, that it will focus on Sauron and his creation of the rings. And I think we know that to be true from the the synopsis that was released. Um, So as long as Sauron is at the center of the show, he is the Lord of the Rings. It will be actually about the forging of the rings. So it's even probably even more accurate than, than the reference of the Lord of the Rings in the third age. So it it could be that. Yeah. I mean, I hope I am hoping that we get much, much more out of this series than just that story, Mm -hmm. since we know there's so much beyond that in the second Mm -hmm. age, but um, if that is if that's what they g- lead with in this very first season, great. Um, we're ready I, for well, it. We on. talked about this. I almost wish that they we get. I'm going to take the opposite view. I think that it'd be better if we got less in this series. I want to focus on one time period, one plot line that's one small piece of the second age, and just really do it right. Focus on the characters, have great character development, show the full drama of this. But I think they can still do that. I think they can still do that and and mess with, you know, time periods and still leave room for lots of spinoffs and different seasons that focus on, 
different eras. Like, <clears throat> I think there's lots of room. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm not trying to say it needs to be limited temporally. Like, it doesn't have to focus on one small period of time. But I wanted to focus on a piece of the entire story so that we can have other spinoffs that show a different piece and then a different piece until these multiple series come together and coalesce into the full picture. And maybe there's like a series down the road that is our ultra payoff. I mean, it's kind of like the Marvel, um, the comic book approach where you have multiple movies focusing on certain heroes and then you have the team up movie. You know, you have the Avengers movie. That's the payoff down the road. We, you know, we could see the same thing with these Lord of the Rings series, you know, that's so true. It could be a slow burn to get there and they're going to show the history of Numenor and early Numenor or perhaps the the piece we're doing now, which is Aldarion and Arendus. If you're just joining us for the first time, you know, we are doing a we are doing this work specifically because it takes place in the second age in Numenor and we could very likely see it on the show. So, that would be that's, you know, another option and I think that would be great if we got that the slow burn and build up to the Lord of the Rings to get to Sauron and, and the forging of those rings. Yeah, maybe they'll call the the show Slow Burn. I'd be into that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> crickets, it's like that's a dad joke. All right, moving on. Next piece of news. Um <laughs> this was broken by Fellowship of the Fans. Um a new actress Chance Ruby, who's an Auckland, New Zealand-based actress, has been cast. And um, you can check out the Fellowship of the Fans YouTube video for how they deduced that she was cast. I'm, I think they just got someone who's trolling uh, resumes online uh, for for actresses in the area, actors and actresses. And they found Chance Ruby on her CV. It says she's been cast as a mage attendant. A mage attendant is is what her role is. Now, that doesn't tell us a lot, but it tells us a little bit more than what we get for some of the other characters. Other characters are warriors or warlords or something even more generic. Mage attendant, I mean, what is a mage? A mage is sort of synonymous with wizard, right? Wizard, witch, um, warlock, you know? And we know in the, the Lord of the Rings universe that there are wizards, so what the fellowship of the fans deduced is that, well, Hey, maybe this means that we will in fact see the blue wizards. And so that was an interesting theory. I'm not sure that I agree with it, but um, it, it certainly adds fuel to the fire that we could see the blue wizards depicted in the, in the series. Yeah. I mean, mage is, t- is traditionally associated with a magician, um, but it, that could be any number of um, any number of powerful you know, creatures like I, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps it's the blue wizards or perhaps it's maybe we will get a Maiar or a Valar, you know, they technically perform magic. Yeah. I, so here, here's one of the many reasons why I think it doesn't necessarily mean it's the blue wizards. I mean, it's totally possible in an obvious way. Mage attendant, mage could be wizard. I get it. But why would Amazon who's been so tight lipped about everything, and only given people the most generic casting names that are really just code words. They're they're meant to obfuscate the real role that they've been cast in. Why would they give a an actress a name that conveys so much information? If indeed 
there's the blue wizards, they would not want to give that away. That would be a huge surprise that, that they want to hold close to their vest. So I don't think they would let that slip through um, careless casting names. Um, Perhaps she's a, a, like a Saur, one of Sauron's servants. Wouldn't that be crazy if he had like a right-hand woman? Oh, I, I, that's exactly actually was going to be the theory that I was going to go for. I, well, not necessarily Sauron's, Sauron's servants, although I suppose that could be uh, certainly in there, you know, um, but to the extent Sauron is starting, you know, magical cults or Melkor worship, I mean, the Melkor worship is going to involve, you know, these um, people who are sort of pseudo magicians, um, priests and priestesses of the dark arts, you know, th- those aren't wizards, but, you know, that's sort of people who worship the sort of dark magic. So she could be somebody who is worshiping, you know, the dark magic in some sort of Melkor worship church that Sauron is fostering in the East. Yeah, man, there's there's a range of possibilities. Um, One of the possibilities, (laughs) one of the possibilities that we hoped for moving right along, we were hoping that Russell Crowe would make an appearance in this series. I think think Hope is putting it not strongly enough. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> we were we were desperate. We were longing. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wake up every morning and pray to Melkor that Russell Crowe is going to be in this show. <laughs> well, sadly for us, he is not in the show. He was actually cast in Thor, Love and uh, Thunder. Ah, boo. However, Torn on April Fool's Day announced that he is in the show along with Mel Gibson. Uh, so they played a, played a funny little prank announcing that he was involved in the show, getting our hopes up. But of course, it was April Fool's. This took me on an so... emotional roller coaster. I mean, I had to chew, you know, eat a bottle of Tums after this because, <laughs> I mean, already I was as low as I could get, you know. Actually, well, <laughs> as low as I you know, a week ago, I was as high as I could get. Russell Crowe tweets out, this picture of himself with ringlets in his hair. I'm like, oh, this definitely means he's in Lord of the Rings because what other, you know, character could he be playing that's set in sort of a medieval setting that has ringlets? Must be Lord of the Rings. Okay, actually, it makes sense that he would be an Asgardian in Thor. So then that brought me as low as I could get. Well, and I'm not a huge Marvel fan. I'm sorry. And so to me, it's like, well, damn, you know, I wish he would have been involved in this project because I'm sure I won't even watch that. Like, I have no plans to watch Thor, Love, and well, Thunder. I'm so sorry, I was going to watch it, but now I'm going to not watch it in protest because they stole my Russell Crowe. <laughs> they stole our guy. But, you know, Torn posted this picture of Russell Crowe and Mel Gibson and indicated they were both going to be, you know, kings of men that would turn into Nazgul. And I was <laughs> totally fooled by this for about 10 seconds longer than I should have been because... I'm I'm so emotionally invested in this idea of Russell Crowe being in the show. Obviously, a you prank. made a pretty convincing argument last week. I mean, you you had me thinking like, you know what? He he, this is it. He's in our show. Yeah, but uh, but you know he's he is not. He started wah-wah. posting pictures of himself with um, who's the actor Chris Hemsworth um, in, in Australia or wherever they're filming, and so it kind of got people figured out. Okay, he must be participating in the Thor shoot if he's hanging out with Chris Hemsworth. So then they just confirmed it that, that he's in Thor. So that, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't foreclose the possibility that he's in Lord of the Rings. It's still possible, but 
it, it definitely explains away all the evidence that we had been looking at before. All the other indicators that suggested he was involved in the show, those are actually attributable to the fact that he's in Thor. So we're kind of back to the drawing board. Back to the drawing board. I mean, we know a lot of the cast We right now. We just don't know who they'll be playing. Mm-hmm. So as far as big names go, just a few, which if you want to know, we talked about those in our very first episode, some of the cast, and we may revisit that at some point. Yeah, I, th- I think it'd be worth revisiting, especially once we learn a little bit more about not only who's in it, but what they're playing. Once we get some indications, you know, beyond, we know who's playing Galadriel. We have some guesses as to who's playing Elrond, but beyond that, we really don't. I think we kind of maybe know who Sauron is. Beyond that, we have no idea. So once we get a little bit more news about who these people are playing, I think there'll be a lot more to talk about. Yeah, most definitely. Um, but on to our deep dive. We're going to continue reading through Aldariana Narendis, Mariner's Wife. I hope you have a copy from Unfinished Tales. And uh, Michael is going to kick us off. Well, Jen, should we summarize what we've already read? Where are we at? Sure. Um, So essentially, we're introduced to our main character, um, Aldarion and his father, Menelder. 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 We get a little bit- It's it's (laughs) Menelder. It is, in fact, Menelder. There's a lot of- We're definitely going to mess up pronunciation, so bear with us as we figure it all out. Um, we get character deep dives in this work, which is really great. So we know Aldarion to be a strong man, you know, a man uh, who really has his own mind. He loves the sea. He's enamored with all things, um, with voyaging and venturing. And um, his father is is exactly the opposite. His father, Menelder, is is the king of Numenor. And he is a, a gentle man. He's a kind man. And he is at first, you know, indulging uh, Aldarion's love of the sea. But um, as it becomes apparent that Aldarion is very distracted by this and paying very little attention to actually learning how to rule, he's becoming frustrated. There's tension in the relationship. Um, so if you want to, do you want to add anything, Michael? No, I, th- I, th- I think you got it. I mean, the first few pages are devoted to telling us who who our main characters are, but before we are introduced to Arendis. So, you know, we understand Eldarion's passion for the sea, his father's kind of, you know, he's pretty cool on the sea, not too into it, doesn't love his son's obsession. And so we've already set up the conflict between father and son. And that, you know, now that that prologue is done, it's time to enter stage left, our romantic female lead. It's time for our meet cute, <laughs> you know, let's 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 get Alderion and Arendis together. Let's get the Barry White soundtrack going. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Barry White playing during a, a Lord of the Rings show? <laughs> I kind of hope that. <laughs> well, in in the year eight hundred of the Second Age, Tarman Elder names Alderion, who's now a spry one hundred years old, the king's heir, and commands him to you know hang out in Numenor for a while. You know, stop your voyaging. Um, stop. Go into Middle Earth all the time. Stick around at home for a little bit. I'm the king. You're the king's heir. It's time to act like it and and stay home. So there are a lot of celebrations to to mark his appointment as the king's heir. Um, and during this feasting, a certain young beauty reads. So Jen, I think there's a passage here that that I want you to read. That uh, it's a bit of a long passage, but it it's our first introduction to Arendis, and I think it's uh, going to be a really fun one. 
To the feasting in Armenelos came one Beregar from his dwelling in the west of the isle, and with him came Arendus his daughter. There Almarion the queen observed her beauty, of a kind seldom seen in Numenor, for Beregar came of the house of Beor by ancient descent, though not of the royal line of Elros, and Arendus was dark-haired and of slender grace, with the clear grey eyes of her kin. But Arendus looked upon Aldarion as he rode by, and for his beauty and splendor of bearing she had eyes for little else. Thereafter Arendus entered the household of the queen, and found favor also with the king. But little did she see of Aldarion, who busied himself in the tending of the forests, being concerned that in days to come, timber should not lack in Numenor. Ere long the mariners of the Guild of Venturers became restless, for they were ill-content to voyage more briefly and more rarely under lesser commanders, and when six years had passed since the proclamation of the king's heir, Aldarion determined to sail again to Middle-earth. Of the king he got but grudging leave, for he refused his father's urging that he abide in Numenor and seek a wife, and he set sail in the spring of the year. But coming to bid farewell to his mother, he saw Arendus amid the queen's company, and looking on her beauty, he divined the strength that lay concealed in her. Then Almarion said to him, Must you depart again, Aldarion, my son? Is there nothing that will hold you in the fairest of all mortal lands? Not yet, he answered, but there are fairer things in Armenelos than a man could find elsewhere, even in the lands of the Eldar. But mariners are men of two minds, at war with themselves, and the desire of the sea still holds me. Arendus believed that these words were spoken also for her ears, and from that time forth her heart was turned wholly to Aldarion, though not in hope. In those days there was no need, by law or custom, that those of the royal house, not even the king's heir, should wed only with descendants of Elros Tarminiatur, but Arendus deemed that Aldarion was too high. Yet she looked on no man with favor thereafter, and every suitor she dismissed. Oh my goodness, this passage. I mean, that, that I want to just go back to uh, the quote that mariners are men of two minds mm -hmm. at war with themselves and the desire of the sea still holds me. That seems like a very central quote from this whole uh, section and really the whole book. Yeah, absolutely. That he is of two minds this entire this entire book, which will play out, you know, in the chapters to come. Yeah, I mean, it kind of summarizes the central conflict of the whole story, and it's almost it's almost too <laughs> too meta. I wonder if they, that would even work to see depicted in a, a screen adaptation, because it's almost like the character is too aware of himself um, for it to make sense, right? Because it's like, well, if you know you're of two minds, maybe you should get a handle on that, bro. Yeah, there's just a lot. There's a lot happening here. I mean, I find it really interesting that he has this self-awareness and he's he's continually torn. But I also find Arendus really interesting in that, you know, she sees him and instantly she's pretty taken mm -hmm. with him. This is a very medieval thing, you know, the love at first sight kind of trope. Um, and she's dismissing other suitors. But she knows already right off the bat uh, that he's that he is hard to get. And it's like she wants him more because of this. Right. And I, I like this passage because, I mean, it really is, does fit into the sort of Hollywood meet cute formula and that, you know, this passage covers when they be, both become aware of each other. And, but unlike in Hollywood where, you know, in Hollywood, it would be their eyes lock across the room and they both become aware of each other at the same moment and they have a meaningful glance and then the annoying cousin comes in and starts talking to Aldarion. And so he looks away and then he looks back across the room and Rennes is gone. That would be like the Hollywood 
meet cute. I mean, here there is that party, but only Arendis sees Alderion at first. And so she becomes smitten, totally smitten. It's kind of love at first sight. She has eyes for little else right off the bat, but Alderion, it doesn't, there's no indication that Alderion is even aware of her, but his mom is aware of her. You know, she finds favor with the queen. She falls in with the, the queen's household, but Aldarion's busying himself for, it doesn't say how long, but I think we can imagine weeks, months, you know, where Arendis is sort of pining and looking at him off in the distance while he's busy doing his, his work. But then finally, at the end of this paragraph, or the end of this section, um, when he's getting ready to leave again, as he's getting ready to leave, that's when he sees her. And so this is the moment where he has a connection with her. And he, you know, I love this line, uh, but coming to bid farewell to his mother, he saw Arendis amid the queen's company and looking on her beauty, he divined the strength that lay concealed in her. So there's no indication that he loves her or anything, but he he certainly sees something that's worth seeing. So I, I, I just like this long sort of delayed meet cute. And I could imagine in a show that this, just this half a page could take a couple episodes. It could be a couple episodes of Arendis and Eldarian not actually being together, but Arendis sort of seeing him off in the distance. And maybe the queen, because the queen is impressed with Arendis. Right. She's playing matchmaker a little bit. She invites Arendis into her mm -hmm. household and we can assume in hopes that you know, he'll take notice of her. I would see her being the meddling queen, not meddling in a negative way, but he is, she's definitely the matchmaker later on in the, in the chapter. So even at this early stage, we see that, you know, she likes horrendous. She invites her into her household. So I, I just think this is an interesting meet cute. It's a bit delayed. It's, it's not something you would see on screen usually, but it's um, it's a good narrative book form of a meet cute. Yeah, exactly. And it, it sets up the the conflict that that plays out in a complicated way throughout the rest of the throughout the rest of the story. What do you think of this line? So the, the key I think the, the the key dramatic twist in this is that when he's getting ready to leave, he sees her and it does indicate that I mean he divined the strength that lay concealed in her. So he certainly sees her and is impressed by her. But his words are um there are fairer things in our Menelos than a man could find elsewhere, even in the lands of the Eldar. But then, but mariners are men of two minds at war with themselves. But that comment, that there are fairer things in our Menelos, do you think that that was in reference to Arendis? Because she takes it as being in reference to her. She thinks he, he has an eye for me and maybe we can never be together, but I've caught his eye. Do you think that she's right? Yeah, I think, I think. I think it makes sense that he's referring to Arendis based on the fact that, you know, just before this sentence, we get that he looks on her beauty and divine the strength, you know, and just after he's having this conversation, after beholding her for the first time, um, and it's clear that he is not ready to settle down. He's not ready to commit to anything. He's He still has that desire to explore and to to go to see so, yeah, I think she was right, and she's perceptive, very perceptive this entire time, um, even right off the bat. She knows what she's getting into to some extent. Yeah. Um, One thing that kind of, at the end of this section, sets up one of Arendis's character flaws, or at least I feel like it's a character flaw, it's something that bothers me, which is that, you know, she's smitten with Eldarion, she has eyes for little else, but she doesn't believe there's any chance for them. Yeah, her heart was turned wholly to Alderion, though not in hope, 
and she thought herself too low because she's not of the house of um, of Elros, so oh, there's no way we can get married. So she doesn't think that they can get together. She thinks it's hopeless. But nonetheless, she turns away every suitor. Like she's like, I, I'll either have Aldarion, who I love, or nobody. And you know what? I think it's going to be nobody because I don't think we'll ever get together. But I'm okay with that. You know, she's so extreme. Um, she's unwilling to compromise, unwilling yeah, to move is. on, unwilling to, you know, find happiness where she can find happiness. She's like, I'm in love with Aldarion. And even though that's hopeless, I'm, well, that's it for me. And it's that's kind of, I find that frustrating in her character as the story goes on. Right. And her mother remarks on that. There's a passage that we'll get to later where her mother is really, is talking about how, you know, she never learns. She's got to have all or nothing. I think that even is in the text, so we'll get to that. Yeah. But, yeah, so this is a good introduction to Arendis. She's in the Queen's uh, household right now, working for the Queen. They've met each other. Um, but Aldarion, just after this scene, decides to leave uh, again. He's He leaves again. He's gone for another seven years. So when he returns, he wants to brag about his exploits, all he's seen and done. But his father is having none of it. His father does not want to hear it. He's frustrated at this point that he keeps venturing out to sea. And uh, Michael's going to read this next passage here. Yeah, so this is Menelder, the king, speaking. And he says, What need have we of more silver and gold, unless to use in pride where other things would serve as well? The need of the king's house is for a man who knows and loves this land and people, which he will rule. Do I not study men all of my days? said Aldarion. I can lead and govern them as I will. Say rather men, say rather some men, of like mind with yourself, answered the king. There are also women in Numenor, scarce fewer than men. And save your mother, whom indeed you can lead as you will, what do you know of them? Yet one day you must take a wife. One day, said Aldarion, but not before I must, and later, if any tried to thrust me towards marriage. Other things I have to do, more urgent to me, for my mind is bent on them. Cold is the life of a mariner's wife, and the mariner who is single of purpose and not tied to the shore goes further and learns better how to deal with the sea. Further, but not with more profit, said Menelder. And you do not deal with the sea, Aldaria, my son. Do you forget that the Adain dwell here under the grace of the lords of the west, that Ewanin is kind to us, and Osi is restrained? Our ships are guarded, and other hands guide them than ours. So be not overproud, or the grace may wane. And do not presume that it will extend to those who risk themselves without need upon the rocks of strange shores or in the lands of men of darkness. Mm, we've got, I mean, just the the rebellious, bratty attitude So much to here. unpack. The daddy issues. Doesn't Eldarion seem like kind of a prick in this, <laughs> in this passage? Like so immature? He just seems, I mean, it's very classic. He seems like, you know, a teenager. Like, don't. Don't try it. I'm going to do what I want to do. You're not the boss of me. I mean, it's in some you ways know. I do feel I feel bad for Eldarion because he comes back. He's so he's proud of himself. He's he's voyaged farther than anyone could ever voyage. He's brought back all this gold and silver, and he's done all this great stuff. And he he wants to he wants to make his dad proud, or he wants people to be proud of him. And his his dad's just totally uninterested. So I could see to a certain extent it's like the son who's seeking his father's love and not getting it. He's kind of being shunned. You know, the dad's like, I'm not into any of what you're doing. So you, I, I do kind of feel bad for him 
in that respect. But at the same time, his response to all of Menelder's comments, which are wise comments, is so ridiculous. You know, Menelder's like, hey, you're going to be king someday. Maybe you should learn how to lead people. And Alderion, who only sees the world that he occupies and wants to occupy, says, do I not study men all of my days? It's like, yeah, you, you lead the men on your ship, but there's only one group of men. There, there are men and women, FYI, that are also going to need you to be a wise leader in the future, and maybe you should care about them. Right, exactly. And he's at this point, he is shirking his responsibilities as a king. Like he, he's torn between this, you know, this passion. He has this burning passion for the sea, um, and he feels that he's not allowed to fully explore this. Um, but at the same time, he takes no heed of his father's words at all. And his father is cautioning him. You know, he says in this passage, what need have we of silver or gold unless to use in pride where other things would serve as well? So that is a warning, not only against greed, but against, you know, mm-hmm. the eventuality of exploiting the things that he finds. And I totally. think there's so much wisdom, as you said, in in many, many of his words um, which Aldarion just completely ignores, and uh, to his detriment, actually, oh, yeah. we know. And I, I love this line where, you know, again, his his father's kind of encouraging him to take a wife. Hey, son, it's time to settle down. You know, find find a wife. Get serious about your life. And, you know, his comment is that, well, I'll find a wife one day, but not before I must, and later, if any, try to thrust me towards marriage. So, I mean, what an attitude. I've, I've yeah. known people like that who just – if you try and pressure them into doing something, they will take longer to do it just because you pressured them. It doesn't matter that it's the right thing to do, that they should do it. You know, They'll cut off their nose to spite their face sort of attitude. If you try and pressure them, it just makes them turn the opposite direction. And that's the type of guy that Aldarion is. Right. And, you know, again and again, his father cautions him, do, so be not over proud. You know, the grace may wane. We Right now we have the grace of the gods, but it's conditional. The grace of Ose and Uinen, which we mentioned in this passage, those are the gods, you know, of the seas. They keep them, they guard them, they have their favor. But um, his father's trying to instill some humility and some responsibility in Aldarion, who, who's just, you know, having none of it. And um, I think, you know, again, we're seeing we're seeing his character, uh, his major character flaw yeah. of pride and, I, and stubbornness here. Right. Totally. And I, I'm, I wanted to include this last paragraph about UNN and OC because I, the more that I read this story, you know, I've read it a couple times through now in preparation to do this, um, these podcasts, and I, I see so much foreshadowing for the downfall uh, of Numenor, you know, thousands of years in oh, the future. Totally. It's the same type of, of pride. You know, the, the Valar protect Numenor. This is a, this is not Middle Earth where you're subject to the same kind of, of weather. You know, you'll have rainy days, you'll have lightning, you'll have earthquakes, just like a, it's a normal world. This is a paradise that is protected from all, most of the hurts and cares of the world by the Valar. You know, they don't have uh, exactly bad bad seafaring days. Their, their ships don't founder on the rocks. They don't get swallowed up by the waves. They're protected by the Lords of the West, by the grace of the Lords of the West. Um, but it is something you can lose if you- It's conditional. Yeah, it's conditional, which is such an interesting, I, I keep ruminating on that concept. It's, you know, it's basically conditional on you kind of being responsible. You know, it doesn't, 
it's not that you need to worship the Valar. They're not looking for worship or love or anything like that. It's just don't take unnecessary risks. Don't don't spit in the face of the grace that we've given you by putting the lives of men that trust you in danger. You know, all these other sailors are following you and you're taking them into dangerous territory unnecessarily. That type of recklessness, which almost borders on, you know, prideful evil, you are departing from the moral character of the, of the Valar. And the farther you get from the moral character of the Valar, the more at risk you become of losing their protection. Right. I mean, he's making mistakes personally and professionally at this moment. <laughs> and I also like that Minelder's kind of squashing all of his, uh, everything that he's proud is like, yeah, yeah, you were sailing around the world, but you're protected. You're, you don't have any struggles. You, you got major white privilege. Here. Yeah. He's trying to keep him humble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're just a, you're Such just, privilege. And Eldarion's... He's just a rich kid. Pretty full, high on his own supply at this point. <laughs> you know, he's got his bros, his yeah. guild adventurers who he sails around with, and they're cheering, chanting his name the whole time. You know, he's, he's right, feeling right, himself. Right, right, He names himself the great captain. Oh, captain. It's great captain <laughs> to you, buddy. Oh, captain, my captain. I am the captain. Well, after their fight, Eldarion goes back to working on his ships. You know, he sinks back into his work. But now that he's home, he also starts meeting with Arendis often. And it says at the contrivance of the queen. So, you know, indicating that she's sort of getting involved, maybe um, making sure they bump into each other in the halls, you know. So, but he is actually hanging out with Arendis. And this is where their relationship starts to blossom. Um, this is pleasing to. Menelder and the queen, but it's also somewhat concerning to Menelder, who says, um, quote, it would be more kind to cure Alderion of his restlessness before he wins the heart of any woman. And, you know, how true that that turns out to be. But uh, the queen retorts that Arendis is not going to live as long as Alderion. Alderion is of the life, uh, uh, has the length and span of life of the Lion of Elros. Um, and they live a hundred, couple hundred years longer than no- normal Numenorians, who do have extended life as it is, but not as long as Elros. So Eldarion has time to spare, but Arendis not so much. So the queen saying, well, uh, we, he doesn't have that much time to mess around because Arendis is going to kind of get old um, by the time Eldarion's ready to settle down. Right. And going back to the very beginning, that was why like lineage, they included lineage and history. And this is really important in understanding like why certain people married certain people and who certain people are descended from because some have longer lives than others. And um, that is an important part of the story is that he's completely non-cognizant of the fact that she has she has less time than he does, less time to waste. Um, so Aldarion, basically at this point, his ship, he's been building this grand ship for himself, the Paloran, and it's finally finished. So he prepares to leave again, and his father is completely furious at this, and he forbids the queen um, and Aldarion's sisters to partake in the ritual. They have a ritual of cutting a bough from the tree of Oilore, I hope I said that right, which signifies ever summer, um, that's typically placed on the ship's bow as a token of friendship with Ose and Uinen. The tree was a gift to the men of the island from the Eldar. So he forbids this ritual, but Arendis finds a loophole and she goes to Aldarion's mother saying she will take the bow to the ship since she was not technically forbidden. 
Yeah, Manelder was like. So Michael's gonna read this. Manelder was like, "You shall not pass." pass. And then Arendus was like, "Are you talking to me?" It's like, "Well, no." Okay, so I'll I'll pass. I'll 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 go over there. (laughs) (laughs) Sneaky, sneaky, Arendus. When all was made ready and men prepared to weigh anchor, Arendus came there. Little though she loved the noise and bustle of the great harbor and the crying of the gulls, Aldarion greeted her with amazement and joy, and she said. I have brought you the bow of return, Lord, from the queen. From the queen? said Alderion in a changed manner. Yes, Lord, said she, but I asked for her leave to do so. Others besides your own kin will rejoice will rejoice at your return as soon as may be. Yes, so Arendus brings this bow to the shipyard, and Eldarion, he's touched, and he sees her he, he in this moment, and it's when he first looked on Arendus with love. So at this point, you know, he's he's really fallen for her. Um, so he does end up leaving, and I do but like, he hastens uh, his return, I, you know? I, I do like that in this scene where she shows up, I mean, we can see the, the drama here. I mean, they've been hanging out. Maybe they haven't, like, fully expressed their emotions to each other. They're just kind of, like, in a flirtation, but they haven't, um, they're not at the, they haven't reached the episode where they've confessed each other's feelings to each other. So she arrives there, and he's kind of, his heart's fluttering, and she's here because she loves me. Um, but then she says, I'm here because the queen asked me to. And he said, oh, oh, the queen asked you to. And then she says, but at my suggestion. And there are others who would like to right. see you come back. I mean, so it's, th- you know, she's saying, I, you know, this is all me. She's definitely the aggressor mm-hmm. here. Yeah, she's pursuing him at yeah. this point, which so, you know, it cannot be said that she's totally hopeless about their relationship. You know, I, I think she... I think there is a spark of hope in that she is pursuing him, clearly. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very grand gesture. She's sanctioning the voyage. She's trying to be part of, you know, his world with this gesture. And he appreciates it. You know, he it works. And um, and so this is insight into her. She's she's pursuing what she wants. She's going after him, even though they have obstacles in the way, even though, you know, she's of a line of people who don't live as long, even though. She knows he's a seafaring mariner and there's all these obstacles. She still is pursuing him. And just a small digression in terms of the line she came from. I mean, it's not, this ain't a bad line. This is the, you know, the house of Baor, you know, one of the original houses of men. It's just, and I mean, remember that uh, Baron, you know, of Baron and Luthien fame, he was of the house of Baor. So she's from that same house. Just not descended directly from Baron, of course, because um, Elros was descended from Baron. So she's not part of Elros's line. Um, I don't think she's descended from Baron, but she's like, you know, I don't know, descended from a cousin of Baron or something like that. I'd have to go and, and look at the chart. But she's from a very, very respectable house. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, very respectable. Just not traditionally married to a king of Numenor. Right. Nevertheless. Right. right. But turning back to our story, you know, this this move on her part, I, I think I, I like to imagine that it's because she comes and sees him off that now he's as he's leaving, he's kind of going, Oh man, I you know, I've got a lady waiting for me and she's she does care about me. And I, I he, so he comes back a little sooner than he would have otherwise. 
Exactly. Yeah. So he comes back and he comes back get bearing gifts, um, including a diamond for Arendis. Uh He's got various gifts for the women of, of the household, but he brings her a big fat diamond. So the king, you know, seeing this, he's not happy. He demands Aldarion declare his mind. You know, such a gift is not fitting unless it is a betrothal gift. Um, but, you know, He's urging his son to think of marriage, which only hardens Aldarion to the idea. So I'm going to read this from the book. Aldarion would have none of it, for he was ever and in every course the more opposed as those about him urged it. And treating Arendis now with greater coolness, he determined to leave Numenor and further his designs in Vignalonde. Life on land was irksome for him, for aboard his ship he was subject to no other will, and the venturers who accompanied him knew only love and admiration for the great captain. So, you know, he's, he, once again, we're getting insight into the stubbornness of his character. You know, he, he feels pressured, like he, he clearly has feeling for, feelings for horrendous, but he feels pressured and then he backs off because he's rebellious. He's a he's a rebel. Um so I think that's very unfair to Arendis, you know, that he he brings her this diamond and then he treats her with coolness. Right. That's it's and, not and she, not and She's okay. probably like I, what's what's going on? Why why are you mad at me, you know? And it has nothing to do with her, but because daddy put some pressure on Aldarion, all of a sudden he's like, well, uh, now I'm not going to see Arendis anymore. And Arendis is like, what the heck, dude? Yeah, I'm in just emotional roller coaster already. Their courtship is a little fraught. I think I think Aldarion's the type of guy, you got to do reverse psychology. And you would think Menelder, being a wise king of the Numenorians, greatest race of men, <laughs> that he would, you know, have a little bit more natural insight into how to you know, maneuver people's psychology. You're like, hey, you know, I don't care if you get married. Maybe you should go to see, you know, permanently. Yeah, if if he wanted him to marry Arendis, (laughs) he he should have forbid him from seeing her. He should have been like, Arendis is not in the land of Elros. You may never see her again. And then Aldarion would have married her the next day. Case closed. We need to remember this for when our, we both have young children. When they become teenagers, we'll remember all these tactics. Reverse psychology. Our, like our kids are going to be way too smart for that. They've got Google. They'll know about reverse psychology by the time they're 11, and they'll be using it on us. So, <laughs> we'll be so far behind. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do if they don't like Lord of the Rings? Oh, no, I won't. We won't even go there. We won't even. Yeah, don't, we, don't I, say it. I shudder to think. I shudder to think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is just so. We. I feel like this whole this whole story is interesting just because of the way it describes Eldarion's character. He's an interesting guy. He's obviously very flawed, kind of petty, um, yearning for independence, just dying for independence. And of course, seafaring is a bit of a metaphor. His passion for seafaring is a metaphor for just his desire for independence, which I think to a certain extent, Tolkien is using that as a metaphor for men or anybody desiring independence in real life. I mean, I, I, I think that he clearly believes this story is a reflection of a common struggle in real life relationships, which it's, it's a little gendered, but I think it, it translates well if you just take away the gendered aspect of it and consider that people of either gender yearn for independence. We have a very uh, individualistic society in America, at least American culture. And Tolkien wasn't 
American, but I'm an American, so I'm viewing it through my own um, lens and life experience. Americans um, have a very individualistic sensibility, whereas some other cultures are more family-oriented or group-oriented. But so we value independence, and so we try and foster that in, in, in people. And sometimes romance and relationships cuts against that individualism. You have to, you do have to sacrifice some of yourself in a, in a way. I mean, you have to be willing to compromise. You have to think about someone else as much as you think about yourself. And if your first consideration is, well, I want to be independent and do what I want to do. And if that's your first priority, relationships are going to be very difficult. And this story really explores that in an interesting way. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And his you know, him going out alone on his ship is very much a metaphor for, as you mentioned last time, for independence, but also singleness. You know, he is t- he's subject to no other will but his own. He's um, aboard his ship and he is able to call the shots and do as he pleases. And that's definitely that's definitely not going to work for being a king who's concerned with the the welfare of others. And I think the fundamental flaw and Aldarion's perception about relationships is that is that he fully buys into this notion, consciously or subconsciously, that being in a relationship requires you to sort of subordinate yourself to another's will. You really have to sacrifice your your independence of mind and spirit. And I don't think that's that's true. I mean, you know, it is true that you have to think about someone else and you have to uh, make sacrifices and, and all of that. But you're not subject to another person's will in the way that I think Aldarion perceives it. You know, I think he feels like if I get into a relationship, if I get married, well, that's it. Um, I'm no longer my own person. I'm now subject to my to my wife's will and I, I'm no longer able to be the man that I want to be. And to have a successful relationship, that, that can't be how it is. Um, and I think the beautiful thing about a good relationship is when you empower each other to become the best versions of yourself. And a good relationship can be that way, but I don't think Aldarion, I mean, I'm reading, I'm not even reading between the lines. I'm reading outside the lines here, but I think um, Aldarion doesn't see that as a possibility. He doesn't conceive relationships as having that attribute. And he, he just sees it as sort of a, a death of independence. And he's he's a person who's totally, he's totally unwilling to complim, compromise or even explore what a compromise would mm-hmm. look like. And that, that is not this, that is, does not ring true for Arendis. Arendis actually, We'll get to this, but she does actually try to find a compromise, support his passion um, without giving over to it, giving him over to it fully. For a hot, um, for a hot minute. He is also, for a hot minute. <laughs> for a minute, yeah. But he is also pretty all or nothing mm-hmm. in that he, you know, he's really unwilling to to curb this um, this desire for her. Yeah, I, I do think that we see it in both of them. They both make a, a minor attempt to sacrifice their passions or their desires, but ultimately they are all or nothing. They're both all or nothing people. So, you know, she does try and sail around with him for a little bit, even though she hates it. And there's a period where he does try and stay at home for a little while, but eventually they, you know, she can't stand sailing around anymore and can't stand letting him go off to sea, you know, spoiler alert. And um, so she, you know, sort of declares war on his passion for the sea. And on the same token, when he, tries to stay home for longer, eventually his desire for the sea becomes overwhelming and he has to go. And so, you know, they both do try, but it's a pretty, ends up being a pretty weak attempt, I think, from both of them. Um, and, uh, you know, f- failure follows. 
It's almost ro- very Romeo and Juliet in that they've got this insurmountable obstacle preventing their love and they they do it anyway. They jump in anyway, but it proves, you know, fatal. And although this doesn't prove fatal, um, it does in, in sort of a metaphoric sense that both of them are destroyed. That's so interesting because it's obviously very different from Romeo and Juliet in the sense that the insurmountable obstacle, it's not an external force that they are forced into. It's not their families. It is a, a part of their own personalities, you know, so that's the insurmountable force. But, but is, yeah, but a crucial, it's like for both of them, crucial parts of their personality. I mean, it proves too much for both of them. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're right. It, there is that, that love there, obviously. I mean, we're going to see this love develop as the story goes on. And there is this, we could see this, there's a perfect love within them, but it is squashed and unable to survive like in Romeo and Juliet because of their family situation. But in in this story, because of the other halves of their character, their other halves, of their personalities that squash it. It's that's, that's an interesting comparison. As we get further on, I have, yeah, I have have much more to say on that, but I want us to get to some of the, uh, some of the meatier parts of this story because we are just getting revved up really. Yeah. We're still in the early stages here, folks. Uh, well, so as the story goes on, Eldarion leaves again, but this time his father forbids it. But once again, Arendus blesses the voyage, bearing the bow. The king is super pissed at this point. He rescinds the title that he bestowed on Eldarion as lord of the ships. He totally shuts down the guild adventurers. This is all while Eldarion's gone. So while he's gone, his dad is just, you know, basically wrecking his boys club. He's selling the pool table, um, put the flat screen TV on Craigslist. Um, you know, he, he's ruining all of Eldarion's toys. Shuts down the shipyards. Craigslist. <laughs> he forbids the, the felling of trees. Yeah, what would be the Numenorian version of Craigslist? I think it's a <laughs> Numenorian. Uh, Baron's List? Baron's List. There you go. <laughs> but it, yeah, he is, his father is angry. Yeah. Very angry. Yeah. When Aldarion returns and sees all that his father has done in his absence, he is also very pissed. So from the book, Aldarion comes back. He sees, you know, that his shipyards have been shut, all these different things. And he says, if I am to have no welcome in Numenor and no work for my hands to do, and if my ships may not be repaired in its havens, then I will go again and soon, for the winds have been rough and I need refitment. Has not a king's son ought to do but study women's faces to find a wife? The work of forestry I took up, and I have been prudent in it. There will be more timber in Numenor ere my day ends than there is under your scepter. And true to his word, Aldarion left again in the same year with three ships and the hardiest of the venturers, going without blessing or bow, for Menelder set a band on all the women of his house and of the venturers and put a guard about Remena. So he's not messing around. He's like, no one is blessing, no one is sanctioning this GD voyage, okay? <laughs> I do not sanction this. <laughs> and I, before we move on too much, I, I don't want to gloss over this line, which is just so insane. Uh, he says to his dad, you know, his dad's again trying to pressure him to get a wife. And he says, has not a king's son ought to do but study women's faces to find a wife? Like, what a prick thing to say. I'm the king's son. I can, yeah. I can marry whoever I want. I just snap my fingers and I'll, I'll get every princess in the, you know, every woman in the land is going to Right. My I feet. do what I want. Uh, yeah. Not a good look, He bro. likes being with his boys out on the sea. No, not a good look. And he's, 
you know, he he leaves again so quickly. It's clear that it's just all out warfare between father and son at this point. You know, they're just button heads like crazy. Yeah. And and this time uh, when Aldarion leaves, he's gone 10 years. And that's such a long time, actually, that people are afraid for his safety. And even Arendis all but gives up on ever seeing him again. Uh, she has scores of suitors because she is a very you know desirable woman from a good house, uh, but she rejects them all because she's pining for Aldarion, who now she's afraid may be dead and may be lost at sea. Uh, but she rejects all of her suitors and goes back to her home in the Westlands, partially I think to escape all the suitors. But um, you know this is a way that she is asserting herself. She's going where she pleases. She's not staying in the capital. Four years later, though, so he's gone 14 years this time, but Eldarion finally returns, uh, but his ships have been battered by the sea. And here we get a very interesting description of his travels. He had sailed first to the haven of Vinyalonde, and thence he had made a great coastwise journey southwards, far beyond any place yet reached by the ships of the Numenorians. But returning northwards, he had met contrary winds and great storms, and scarce escaping shipwreck in the Harad, found Vinyalonde overthrown by great seas and plundered by hostile men. Three times he was driven back from the crossing of the great sea by high winds out of the west, and his own ship was struck by lightning and dismasted, and only with labor and hardship in the deep waters did he come at last to Haven in Numenor. So this is, you know, this is chickens coming home to roost. You know, you spit in the face of the gods, you're going to reap the consequences. Right, exactly. So in defying his father and going on the journey without it having been blessed beforehand, you know, his father is saying this this angered the gods. Um, and, you know, he rebukes him when he comes back. And this, you know, so, I, I, um, I, this is such an interesting passage because it's not just that he had tough seas in, you know, when he was sailing around Middle Earth, because we could maybe set that aside. Middle Earth is a little bit out of the protection of the Valar in terms of the way that they're protecting Numenor. So yeah, you sail away from Numenor, you might get some some bad seas. But you know, he he tries he had tried to sail home across the Great Sea, but was driven back by high winds out of the west. So these are winds coming from uh Valinor. We can deduce it, it you know this is the Valar who were kind of punishing him. I mean it, lightning strikes the mast of his ship. Uh, that's just really fascinating. I mean he really is starting to get punished and this is the weather is, we could see this in a, in an adaptation, the weather very much being um, a metaphor for the state of his relationship, either with his father or with Arendis. It's getting stormy. <laughs> getting stormy, getting cold. Or she blows. <laughs> oh, God. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. From, from the book, greatly was Menelder comforted at Aldarion's return, but he rebuked him for his rebellion against king and father, thus forsaking the guardianship of the Valar and risking the wrath of Ose, not only for himself, but for men whom he had bound to himself in devotion. Then Aldarion was chastened in mood, and he received the pardon of Menelder, who restored him to the lordship of the ships and havens, and added thereto the title of Master of Forests. But, you know, he, he does, the king makes sure to underscore exactly your point michael which is listen you you risked the wrath of the gods and 
and you know he got it his ship struck by lightning was definitely um that's plot that's not coincidence you know and um we see this so much throughout literature like incurring the wrath of the gods or god very singular is a common theme you know throughout all of literature but certainly the things tolkien would have studied old testament greek nordic literature homer's odyssey um you know you if you cross the gods in any way, you know, watch out. I mean, personally and for whatever your occupation will be, it's it's it does not uh, bode well for your future. Absolutely. So there's a little nugget in here that I want to point out that I think is particularly relevant to how this story could be adapted and tied into a broader series about Sauron, um, the Lord of the Rings, you know, and we don't get a ton of activity of what's going on in Middle Earth. So I you know, we talked about this, how this story could be a way to introduce us to Numenor, could be a way to introduce us to Gilgalad and some of the other good characters. And I, But I think that sort of off in the distance, a little bit out of the purview of the main story, we would see little flashes, little uh, subtle introductions to what's going on in the East. And so here we see, you know, on this journey, which had been fraught with problems, you know, he, he goes and explores and goes south southward into the region of Harad, which we know in the Third Age um, is firmly under Sauron's control. The men of the Harad are are fully corrupted and they're allied with Sauron. Um, but, you know, we're only in the Second Age here, but even in the Second Age, you know, 800, between 800 and 900 in the Second Age, Sauron is starting to make waves a little bit. He's starting to build some power. He hasn't openly declared himself. He doesn't openly declare himself until uh, after he's created the rings of power. Uh, so this is several hundred years later, but he's still active. Um, so he would be sort of an unknown force at this time, but still probably influencing men in the East. And here we would see just one of those little flashes. It probably wouldn't get any attention, um, but he finds that the harbor at Vinyalonde is overthrown, not just by great seas, but plundered by hostile men. So hostile men in the Harad, I mean, these are going to be men that are influenced by Sauron. And so it's just going to be one of those little, little tie-ins that I think that they could slowly, slowly, slowly start to introduce the concept of a malevolent and dangerous power being out east, starting to encroach on the men and peoples of the West. Certainly. I mean, there's a lot of references and there's a lot of setting groundwork for later plots yeah. and setting groundwork for cultural rituals. I love that we get the ritual of the setting, you know, the cutting of the boughs that was given by the gods. Um, just the glance into the culture of Numenor, I think, is is really important and um, could obviously be very easily depicted in film. Like none of this is to the gods are present, but they're not, they're not speaking, right? They're just, they're sort of, um, they're not central to the story, which is also why I think this is very easily adaptable um, to the screen and they're referenced, but they're not actually, you know, speaking unlike, Unlike a lot of the Silmarillion or these other works that are, I think would be much harder adapt, to adapt, I think this could be adapted beautifully. Yeah, and with gorgeous, you know, shots of sea voyages and harbors and all of that stuff. Yeah, and and I really like your point that the introduction of a ritual is a way to tie in the existence and importance of the Valar in a more direct way. And it's actually interesting. I I don't think that there are rituals in this way that are present in the Lord of the Rings um, 
book, you know, in the third age, we don't see a lot of rituals because there really isn't religion in this universe. I mean, Tolkien says that there's, there's not really a lot of religion. So we don't see a lot of religious type ceremonies or anything akin to that. Um, We don't see even secularized rituals that in any way approximate religious ceremonies, but this ritual of tying the, the tree bow to the ship is the closest thing we get to it. And I think that's interesting because those types of ceremonies are, are so important to culture and they can be um, an important mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. way of setting the scene. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really good insight. And it it just, it, it harkens back to what human beings have been doing, you know, for since the beginning of time. So this is just such a human story, which is why I like it, I think, because it centers on these characters and, Uh, How deeply flawed they are. Mm -hmm. Um, With that being said, um, Aldarion and Minelder, they are, they are, they make up. We get this, you know, this moment of reconciliation, thankfully. And uh, his father does, as I read, restore his lordship of the ships and the havens. And I love that he adds the title Master of Forests. It's such a dad move to be like, I'm going to give you extra responsibility (laughs) so you'll actually care about this. You know, it's like, it's definitely a dad move. Right. Um, a dad who spoils and, his son, I uh, so, think, is, is what we're seeing. Because yeah, he, he chides him. A little bit, And Alderian yeah. does feel bad. And so then, then Alder's like, oh, oh, don't feel bad. Okay, you feel bad. But here's a yeah, cookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't feel bad for too long. <laughs> oh, and here's another title. Yeah, exactly. So Aldarion, you know, he's like, all right. I'm going to stick around a little bit, but he is disappointed because Arendis has left. She was out of there. Um, But he is, it says from the book that he is too proud to seek her. Oh my God. He is still unwilling to propose or be bound, um, as it says in the book. I'm sick of this guy already. Uh, But he, I know, come on. But he does finally start to take up some responsibility on Numenor and he... Uh, notice that the forests have not been kept up. He is, after all, master of the forests now, so he needs to maintain them. Um, and he decides, you know, trees need to be replanted. They've been felled for various projects um, on the island. Shipbuilding is one of them. Um, but he's he's going to survey the forests one day on horseback. And this scene, I feel like this scene could be shot so beautifully mm-hmm. i can just see it with natural light we'll read the scene and then talk about how perfectly it could be adapted for a film and, and before I, um, I read this passage i i just cannot get over this guy has been gone for 14 years he screwed up he knows he screwed up his dad chided him he said i'm sorry he felt bad he felt abashed and but he still is like too proud to go seek his girlfriend who he should not at all be surprised didn't stick around for 14 freaking years. Like she thought you were dead, dude. Maybe you should have a heart and go seek her out to be like, Hey, I'm alive. I'm here. (laughs) Sorry. I was gone so long, but even under these circumstances, he's still too proud. Like at this, it's at this stage in the story. Like when I read that after this, that he was still too proud to seek her. I was very annoyed (laughs) with Aldarion. Yeah, I mean, he becomes more and more unsympathetic. They both at some point are unsympathetic, but he's definitely at this point lost me. I think he's pretty selfish. Mm -hmm. And also, 
you know, the fact that Arendis, she left the House of the Queen, even though it's it's an honored, respected position. She goes to be back with her family. And who who among us would not do that, you know? And so she she's definitely driving her own story and that she says, well, I'm not going to stay here and wait for this guy. It's clear that he's not coming back. And she does, in a sense, move on, even though she doesn't move on romantically. She does leave and she goes home. And that's a good point because the narrative kind of glosses over that. But you're right that she was a part of the king, the queen's household, which she was in a place of honor. She had tons of suitors, so lots of options. I mean, she could have written her own ticket um, and probably done almost whatever she wanted instead of giving up on Aldarion and deciding to take this uh, some other path and and um, embrace those opportunities. She just she says, "I'm not really interested in all that." She gives up all those opportunities, gives up that honor, and just goes home. And that really says something about Arendis, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, which brings us to their very romantic encounter. Yes. Uh, you want to you want to read yes. it, Michael? Riding one day in the forests of the Westlands, he saw a woman whose dark hair flowed in the wind, and about her was a green cloak clasped at the throat with a bright jewel. And he took her for one of the Eldar, who came at times to these parts of the island. But she approached, and he knew her for horrendous, and saw that the jewel was the one that he had given her. Then suddenly he knew in himself the love that he bore her, and he felt the emptiness of his days. Arendis, seeing him, turned pale and would write off, but he was too quick, and he said, Too well have I deserved that you should flee from me, who have fled so often and so far. But forgive me, and stay now. They rode then together to the house of Beragar, her father, and there Aldarion made plain his desire for betrothal to Arendis. But now Arendis was reluctant though according to custom and the life of her people, it was now full time for her marriage. Her love for him was not lessened, nor did she retreat out of guile, but she feared now in her heart that in the war between herself and the sea for the keeping of Aldarion, she would not conquer. Never would Arendis take less, that she might not lose all, and fearing the sea and begrudging to all ships the felling of trees which she loved, she determined that she must utterly defeat the sea and the ships, or else be herself defeated utterly. Boom. Ooh, chills. Such a good passage. I mean, I can just see like very natural light. You know, he's riding through the forest and he just sees glimpses of this beautiful woman um, and he encounters her, you know, and they ride together and um, he see, you know, for I love that he sees the jewel that he's mm-hmm. given her. She's still wearing it. And yeah, she's still wearing it after 14 she's years. She's still wearing it. So she's, you know, she's still carrying a torch for him. Um, and he remembers the love he bore her. And I love that it says he felt the emptiness of his days. So like, even though he's been pursuing his passion, you know, unbound, unbridled, he feels that where was the meaning in it in this moment when he sees her and and feels that love for her again yeah um it's like he it's like he has an awakening like this is his epiphany yeah this is the moment um so there are different versions of this in all kinds of love stories and cultures but like this makes me think of (laughs) in a weird way the godfather so if you if you read read the godfather obviously the movie is great but it's based on a book and if you read the godfather um, when Michael Corleone is sort of in exile in Italy, um, this would be in the first movie after he, um, you know, commits murder and has to flee the United States, and he's in hiding in Italy, and he's just walking in the Italian countryside, and he sees a girl, 
and it, it describes what happens to him as being struck by a thunderbolt. You know, the moment where it, it's a very romantic notion, you know, love at first sight type of thing. You're struck by a thunderbolt and it's like it, it overcomes you. It fills up your body. It's, you know, all of a sudden you're overcome with love and you just know it. And that's what this moment is for Alderion. It's like he's being struck by a thunderbolt and all of a sudden he fully realizes and fully accepts within himself the depth of his love for Arendis, which he had been, you know, denying within himself up until now to a certain degree. Uh, and so it, it really I, would I make love for that a he, beautiful moment in the show. Beautiful scene. And he asks for her forgiveness, which I love. Too well have I deserved that you should flee from me who have fled so often and so far, but forgive me and stay now. You know, he asks for her forgiveness. Like he do, he humbles himself maybe for the first time right. in this narrative, you know, asks. And I think it, it, that is a pretty critical part. And they, you know, it enables them to be together for a time. Um, and he goes and makes plain, you know, his desire to, bet- you know, be betrothed and engaged to her. Um and she's naturally reluctant. Of course, she's reluctant. You know, he's been gone for so long. Like, is he going to be a man of his word? And I actually and I actually love that. I think that is so unusual. This is a way that I think one of the ways in which Tolkien sort of subverts the natural narrative function. I think that my instinct would be that this is this is their moment of happiness where they fully embrace each other and, the, and they have at least a short period of bliss before it is destroyed by some external force or some other conflict or even you know internal conflict but at least for a moment they should be able to enjoy each other's love but at this moment where they should have that in fact Arendis is now the one who is unsure and even though she still loves him fully i mean she's still been pining for him and wearing the diamond um you know nonstop since he's been gone for 14 years it's not that she doesn't love him but she knows she's a smart smart person and she knows that he still has a love for the sea so she's cautious She's cautious, and I love that she is, you know, unlike some more passive character, she certainly has a will of her own, a personality of her own, and she's she's not just jumping on this train. It's not all mm-hmm. about him and what he wants. Um, she's got her own thoughts and feelings about it, and not only that, I mean, she's hesitant about him as a person at this point, mm-hmm. but she's also hesitant because... Um, once again, her love of the forest, love of trees is in contrast of his love of ships and felling the trees, which she loves. And so those two are at war with each other, those two desires. So she, you know, quote unquote, thinks, she determines that she must utterly defeat the sea and the ships or else herself be utterly defeated. Which, um, man, I mean, again, foreshadowing, you know, foreshadow much, <laughs> you know, that's. Yeah. Again, she is very aware, kind of like exactly. what I mentioned earlier about Eldarion having a weird self-awareness, sort of uh, thinking to himself in a meta way about the conflict that characterizes the story. Here again is now Arendis thinking to herself and being very aware of this conflict that defines the story. Interestingly, you know, she resolves to herself that she's going to go be at war with the sea and going to crush Alderian's love for the seers. I'm not sure how she imagines she's going to do that, but she decides she's going to do that. But she doesn't say that out loud. She has these thoughts. She knows that she needs to defeat the sea, but she doesn't express that to Alderian. She keeps it to herself. And what a recipe for disaster 
to go forward knowing or believing that there's this conflict on the horizon, but deciding that you're going to to crush that part of your partner's spirit in some way. There's no transparency in this relationship. They're not talking about much. Yeah. <laughs> you guys need to talk this through. How's this going to work logistically? Yeah. There, there's some major communication problems between these characters. I mean, I do wonder, you know, and I, I had planned to kind of save this discussion for later, but I do wonder how much of Tolkien's own experience goes into this narrative of just a fraught relationship and difficulty within a relationship. We know that he was married for a very long time, right? But we also know that there were challenges within his marriage and that, you know, his wife at times resented resented the fact that he was so fully absorbed in this other Mm -hmm. world and she was excluded from those circles entirely. I mean, women were not allowed to attend the university that he attended and and I just, I just do wonder, the, you know, the Inklings, you know, how his much... own boys club excluded women. I mean, exactly. Like, is this representative of the, the guild of adventurers? One, one has to wonder. That's, that's a really interesting parallel. And, um, I think one that we should explore more directly in, in future episodes. Definitely. I think that's a, there's plenty of material there to mine. Definitely. Well, I think that's all for today. We're going to cut it there. We've got so much more left to explore. Thank you so much for joining us if, you, if you're with us this far. Um, we've got lots more to come. Once again, uh, like and subscribe and share with your friends. And Can, can, I, can, can I do the outro this time? Oh, yeah. Please do the outro. Sorry. I just am so autopilot. I, I got something in mind here. So friends, listeners, may the hair on your toes never fall out. Beautiful. (laughs) Let's do that one every time. (laughs) All right. See you next week. This is Orlando Bloom ordering a drink from Starbucks. Hi there. Yeah, I'd like a tall. Um, I'd like a tall drink. Do you have any? Actually, do you have some uh, protein? I'd like some protein power f- powder first and sure. foremost. All right, absolutely. Also, um, a little more rare. I'd like some brain octane oil and possibly the collagen powder also for my hair and nails. And um, you know, <laughs> I know this is really LA, but I really like to have this before I eat anything else. Um, in addition, a little hazelnut milk, cinnamon, vanilla paste. Um, actually, I'm, I'm getting a little hungry. Uh, perhaps some porridge, or if you have some goji berries, or like vegan, vegan protein powder in there. I'm, I'm ninety percent plant based. I am a vegan. I don't know if, if you knew that, but veganism is the only way to go. Um, but you know, I sometimes look at a cow and I think that is the most beautiful animal I've ever seen ever beautiful thing I've seen ever and I include my wife and child in that statement and you know I really think someday we're going to look down at our big fat juicy steak that gorgeous rare dripping steak oh shit I'm getting really hungry damn it what was I saying Oh, my order, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, mate. Sorry, you're probably really caught up in like, who is this guy? You probably already know who I am. But the most important thing to know about me is that I am Buddhist. And the work that I'm doing right now is so important for Amazon, these projects. And 
you know, mate, I know that it's been a really hard time, but I want you to know that I am centering women and minorities, particularly in all my projects. And I feel that I am the bloke to represent them. You know, I know I'm a white, uh, I'm white dude, but I feel like I'm really the person who can be their spokesperson. I don't know how else to say it. I think I really can capture their perspective. So you're going to want to watch what I do. You're going to absolutely going to watch what I do. And, you know, just to leave you with this last parting thought, I want to leave you with something since I am a Buddhist and I feel like I can impart pearls of wisdom. Uh, You are the driver of your own train. You are the driver. You can set it on fire you can put, you know, you can put anybody you want in there, in that fire, but you could always, your worst enemies could be in there, or your best friend, anybody, but you could always put that fire out. Remember that, mate. You can always put that fire out if you bloody well need to. 